Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... People would not eat a mammal burger. They'd want to know what it is they were eating. Or, you know, bird. Here's some bird. Like, what bird? Fish. They're quite happy. Oh, yeah, just fish. Illegal and unregulated fishing is rife in the imported seafood market. Here in Australia, we import two-thirds of our seafood... So how do we stop it? The government has proposed some changes which will see some real differences in the way the industry is regulated. Find out how you can do your part to help in this story coming up on The Wire. Treasurer Jim Chalmers released the MyEFO update today, which is an update on the May budget to adjust settings for the year. It is also an opportunity to make changes. For example, the cost of a 10-year passport will rise by $50. The final tranche of tax cuts are set into the budget and the deficit has benefited from a better-than-expected income tax take. I asked Warren Hogan, Chief Economic Advisor to Judo Bank, to explain the main outcomes from this budget adjustment. Well, I think yeah, the most important element is sort of resetting all of the government's numbers given what's happened in the economy. Obviously, the government's budget is highly dependent on economic activity and inflation and all these sorts of things, and that's the main effect. It's 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 a lot of the policy decisions uh, in there have been an, an announced in the last six months. Um, and look, today you've so, seen the benefits of what is essentially a much stronger than expected economy uh, is the bottom line. Uh, we've got a better budget position. It's still in a very small deficit this current year, which was was expected to be a deficit of around 14. It's now uh, just over one, I think. But it then sort of goes back to sort of about 1% of GDP, over $30 billion for the next few years. So we've still got these budget deficits. They're just a little bit lower than previously thought. That, of course, means a little bit less debt, a little bit less interest costs. So, you know, it's an improvement in the government's position and driven by primarily much higher income taxes. And within that, both personal income taxes and company income taxes. So that's the really sort of significant feature of the of the update. Because the, the lower income offset has, has changed that a lot, hasn't it? Well, they got rid of the lower middle income tax offset last year. That was already in the numbers. Um, really, what we're seeing here, and, and we got confirmation of this with the GDP report of the National Accounts a, a week or so ago, is um, bracket creep uh, is playing a big role. And, of course, Treasury doesn't want to talk about it too much, nor does the Treasurer. But essentially... More and more Australians are going into higher tax brackets. The income tax burden on Australian households has skyrocketed. There's no two ways about it. Um, it's having actually a bigger effect than interest rates and what the RBA is doing. And it's all because of inflation. It's, yes, the fact that more people have jobs and um, people are getting wage rises. But really, the what's supercharging this is the fact that uh, because we do not index our tax brackets, which many countries around the world do, including the United States, um, uh, inflation be, becomes 
uh, a friend of the Treasury. They get more revenue from it because of bracket creep. But some of the changes that were made, uh, you know, some years back meant that there are less brackets. So hasn't that helped a bit? Well, look, we don't know the counterfactual in terms of these actual numbers, but it should have. Um, the big uh, reform in terms of removing tax brackets is actually coming with the stage three tax cuts, which are quite politically, you know, Charged. tricky at the moment. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and that's because the the the, it's the, the rich. final stage. It's the rich it end is. of the spectrums. <laughs> it is. People and think, I think they don't need a cut. They don't need it. Why do they need a cut? Well, you know, I think that's a very f- fair observation. Um, and look, my view is is that we actually do need to be giving some of these income taxes back. Bracket creep, I think, is one of the most unfair things in our economic life. Uh, we've basically not been too concerned about it for the last 30 years because inflation's been low. It was a big deal in the 1970s and 80s, and it's becoming a big deal again. Now, look, the stage three tax cuts give some money back, but as we just alluded to, it's not probably the optimal way, particularly given how much pressure low and middle income earners are under. Um, now, because the, ta- the stage three is legislated, it's politically straightforward for that to happen. The pragmatist in me says, you know, you just let it happen. But ideally, we would be looking to reduce the tax burden on low and middle income taxpayers um, or focus it in on that end because that's where the real hurt is out there in the economy at the moment and has been for over 12 months. So do you think the government's going to seem a little bit heartless here? Look, I mean, you can always sort of spin these numbers how you want and obviously politicians are masters of that and some media people. The reality is to give uh, Jim Chalmers and the Treasury the credit, they're getting this extra money and most of it is going to the budget bottom line. It's helping to improve the budget position. The number in in the last six months, they've got an extra $45 billion over the next four years, not this year, but over cumulative over the next 40, four years. They've got an extra $45 billion because of a stronger economy, basically. And policy decisions have only cost them $5 billion. So that's in Australian political history, in Australian political terms, is quite a degree of discipline. But uh, overall, this Maifo is a kind of steady as she goes, firm hand on the tiller. Yeah, very much. I think you've summarised it well there. Um, like I said, the government does deserve credit for showing discipline. And I'm sure there's huge political pressure on them to do things like cut the petrol excise or something else to provide cost of living relief. They're resisting that because they know it won't sort of help in the sense that it just puts money in the economy. The RBA will probably have to raise rates. Um, so it is very much... The economy has delivered them more revenues and they're being quite disciplined with what they do with those extra revenues. Warren Hogan, Chief Economic Advisor to Judo Bank, speaking with me there. I'm Roderick Chambers and this is The Wire, broadcasting around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. of globally traded seafood comes from illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. This means putting environments, ecosystems and labourers at risk. Australia imports two-thirds of our seafood to keep up with demand, demand that only grows with the oncoming festive season. In response to this rising issue, the Australian government has introduced policy proposals to keep illegal, unregulated and unreported seafood out of the country. 
To help do our part, Megan Grew asked Dr Kat Dory from the Australian Marine Conservation Society what exactly the policy proposals will regulate and how it will affect our seafood consumption. Well, at the moment, there's three parts to the proposal. And the first part is to collect all the necessary information on seafood imports because at the moment we collect so little data, it's really hard to, A, be able to assess any kind of risk of of dodgy seafood coming in and, B, to do some basic things like require labelling. So we, we don't even collect the species name of all the seafood we get. Quite often seafood comes in under like a generic fish label or an example of squid. Like there's, there's hundreds of species of squid, but it all just comes in under squid and calamari. So the first part is get all of that, the vital information, including whether it's fished or whether it's from fish farms. And then the next part is to look at a few key high-risk species, and they've named potentially um, species like squid, shark and sardines. So those species will require full traceability catch documentation from the, the time it was caught, um, the vessel it was caught by and all that kind of thing, all the way to the import point. So full traceability so that they can have a closer look at those higher risk species. And then finally, the proposal is to work internationally, um, particularly with other countries that have got catch documentation schemes and and rules around what can be imported. So that's um, Japan, the EU and the USA all have have schemes in place. So very key to us working with these other organisations and working internationally to make traceability stronger. So why has it taken so long to have this regulation recommendation implemented? Wouldn't this have been done sooner if it's such a big part of our import? Well, you'd think so. I think partly because we're not one of the the biggest markets internationally on seafood um, and Australia does tend to kind of wait till others take action. But now that we have the US and the EU um, taking action on this, it's it's the right time. It's it's kind of a good idea to see how other people do these things and then uh, learn from their mistakes, I think. Mm. Isn't that surprising that two-thirds of our seafood is imported? You'd think that we're a fresh food country, but no, we're importing all of that. Is that just due to demand? Yeah, it's it's largely because even though we have this amazing biodiversity in our waters, we don't actually have large volumes of fish. So we have to import to, to meet our tastes. And, you know, also sometimes people want something that we can't catch in our waters. We, you know, we have a, a very multicultural society with different tastes. People might want some of the fish that they used to get from home. So there's there's a, a range of different reasons. But ultimately, we cannot provide the amount of seafood that we want to eat. So we have to import, which is why it's so important to make sure that we know what we're importing and set some boundaries around what can be imported and what cannot so how can consumers change the way they spend to assist the support of regulated fishing? Will there be any documentation that um, consumers can see, like on the product? At the moment, sadly, the labelling requirements is very low. Um, you don't even have to specifically label the species. For retailers, you have to put the country of origin but that can be where the fish was last processed. So it doesn't necessarily mean that's where it was caught. And then for restaurants and cafes and bars, they've got until 2025 before they have to start putting on their menus whether seafood is from Australia or whether it's imported. They don't actually have to say where it was imported from. They just have to say 
Australian imported or mixed origin. So it's not enough information for seafood eaters to actually make their own decisions, really. The, the funny thing, like you, you'd never, people would not eat a mammal burger. They'd want to know what it is they were eating. And yet, or, or you know, bird, here's some bird. Like what bird? Fish, they're quite happy. Oh, yeah, they're just fish. Like, yeah, which of the many, many hundreds and thousands of species of fish is that? <laughs> if you have a look at um, the, the big three retailers have got more labelling on theirs and quite a few of the, of the seafood brands that you find in there in supermarkets, you'll find a bit more labelling than is required by law, but it's really inconsistent. Even in Coles or Woolies, if I go to the fresh fish counter, there's sometimes it'll have, you know, product of New Zealand, and so arrow squid, but but then I've sent others where it's just like there'll be a squid marinara or, or squid tubes and I'll just say squid tubes. It's really vague. But also consumers need to start demanding this information. So if you're in a, if in a, you're in a fish and chip shop or, or a, a retailer, ask where it's from, ask how it was caught and where it was caught. And if they can't tell you, walk away. Dr Kat Dory from the Australian Marine Conservation Society speaking there with Megan Grew. Reception isn't always the best out here in the bush. But if I miss The Wire, I listen to the podcast. The Wire. Across Australia weeknights on Indigenous and Community Radio. And now podcast. Changes to Australia's immigration policy was announced by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese on Saturday. These reforms look to push immigration to sustainable levels. But some say these reforms are a ploy detracting from more pressing issues. James Montemayor has this story. The federal government has announced its new migration strategy overhauling what was described a broken system. These migration reforms will reportedly crack down on student visas being used as a backdoor entry and will see heightened English language requirements. This comes as reported half a million migrants arrived in post-pandemic Australia, but amidst a housing and cost-of-living crisis, there are concerns that this will push inflationary pressures. Jane O'Sullivan from Sustainable Population Australia was critical of Australia's current population rhetoric. Immigration policy is not related to our population growth at all in terms of policy settings. The government has no real policy around how fast Australia's population should grow. So-called policy or its rhetoric is that we need to keep infrastructure creation up to keep pace with population growth, but it's not actually trying to control the population growth. If we take a a long-term sustainability view, we have to stabilise our population because nothing can grow forever on a finite resource base. However, O'Sullivan received the changes to the migration policy positively, but suggested it may not be enough. Well, the measures that the government's announced are mostly positive in themselves, and um, they'll prevent some of the rotting of the um, visa system. But they're more about the quality of migrants than the quantity. The intake of some groups of migrants will go down, but other groups might go up. And when the our minister said they'd bring immigration down to a sustainable level. They're not really doing much about reducing the numbers. The numbers will come down a little bit anyway because um, of the delayed effect of the pandemic. Um, 
but the levels they're talking about are still higher than they were in 2019, which is much higher than sustainable in terms of sustaining our environment or our quality of life. May Aziza, spokesperson for Everybody's Home, slammed the migration reforms by Labor. Aziza says the newly renounced migration system detracts from government responsibility. Migration isn't pushing up the cost of housing. Uh, We know that housing uh, actually got more expensive when migration was low during the pandemic. Rents went up and the cost of buying also went up. We also know that Australia's never had more homes per person than we have now, and yet housing has never been more expensive. So this is a problem that's been created by government policy. It's only going to be fixed by government policy. And, uh, you know, this is just a ploy, really, to pretend that this is a problem that's been imported into Australia. Aziza added the government blaming migration on the housing crisis is merely a ploy. The government is suggesting uh, that this is this is a problem created by migration because it's convenient for them and it's also easy. It gives them a villain that isn't government policy. Um, we know the migration uh, program isn't always popular. And um, we also know that they don't want to do the hard things that need to be done to bring housing costs down. However, O'Sullivan insisted that migration pushes the demand of housing, limiting supply. Well, housing is a market and it responds to supply and demand. And the rate of supply is fairly difficult to, you know, it doesn't respond quickly to changes. So when the demand changes rapidly, obviously the price goes up. And that's particularly what happened with rents since the pandemic. Not so much with house prices. The house prices went up because the government decided to stimulate the housing market a lot during the pandemic. But the rents went through the roof when the borders reopened and the migrants started coming in. And it's not just rents, it's the availability of any accommodation at all. Vacancy rates at record low numbers. So, you know, people are really being forced into homelessness and into share houses that are not suiting their needs. Um, because of that pressure from immigration. However, Aziza said the core of the housing market crisis comes from the lack of social housing and a tax system that benefits investors. The biggest thing the government could do is start investing in social housing. Back when housing was affordable in Australia, about one in three people who was renting was renting from the government. Um, About uh, one in four new builds that was being built was being built by the government, and so the government had a lot of leverage into the market to try and bring down costs. Now uh, it's about 1% of new builds and we're losing more social housing than we're building, so we need to do something about that. The other thing is the tax system is really designed to push up the cost of housing for investors, um, so we really need to do something about that if we're going to be serious about bringing down housing costs. May Azize from Everybody's Home speaking there with James Montemayor. Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay well. As per the 2021 National Community Attitudes Towards Violence Against Women survey, young Australians aged 16 to 24 are gradually improving in their understanding of violence against women and attitudes towards gender equality. 
Samuel Kathakua asked Dr Jane Lloyd, Acting CEO of ANROSE Australia, National Organisation for Women's Safety, how the understanding of safety issues has evolved. So today we're really excited to be launching our 2021 National Community Attitudes Towards Violence Against Women Survey. This is specifically the findings for young Australians. The young Australians are people aged from 16 to 24 years of age and it includes a sample of around 1,700 young respondents. So what we found was that overall it's good news. The trends are positive. Young people's attitudes of and attitudes towards violence against women and gender inequality are improving slowly over time. And when we looked at the results from 2017 compared to 2021 for young people, we found their understanding of violence against women, the rejection of gender inequality and rejection of violence against women and sexual violence had significantly improved. What do you think has prompted to the positive shifts in the attitudes? We work with school environments and we have a Respectful Relationships program. And ANROSE recently released some research that we did um, with Professor Carl. And we looked at, we evaluated some of these Respectful Relationships programs. And we found that when teachers and schools are supported, so in in being able to deliver these programs and when we link in social and emotional well-being, it can have a real impact on giving young people the knowledge, skills and confidence to know when to speak up, how to speak up safely. Do you think young women and men have different attitudes towards violence against women and why? So absolutely. In our NCAS survey, when we looked at young people, we did find that young men's understanding and attitudes consistently lagged behind young women. We did find that the rejection of problematic attitudes was often stronger for people aged 18 to 24 compared to those aged 16 to 17. So that tells us that people's attitudes are still developing um, among young people. So if you can change your attitudes from when you're 16 to 17 to when you're aged 18 to 24, that gives us great hope um, because people are amenable to change. And so that's exactly where we want to be targeting the respectful relationships and social and emotional wellbeing programs. I will say that we are, we're living in a time that when there's an online environment and people often think that the online environment is where abuse can carry out. So it's not just in the schoolyard anymore or at work, but actually online. Young people are targeted online through the algorithm and um, in other ways or given misinformation that can have a negative impact. As we talked about the online environment, can you suggest some ways or strategies to prevent violence against women and make people more aware of that? So I think anything to do with young people should be done with young people. So not uh, two or four, but with. People often talk about co-design and, and that authentically we need to be doing that and we need to be working with all young people, so not just mainstream, but people who might speak a language other than English, people with disabilities, people in rural areas and others. So we really need to make it everybody's responsibility and be working with young people. If we can begin violence prevention early and we can continue that in age-appropriate ways, then we really will see changes in attitudes and and behaviours 
through adolescence and young adulthood and they'll take that with them through their work and lives and if they have their own children into those environments. Are there any challenges in adopting healthy attitudes um, among young people? I think we have lots of examples of good programs where we're able to engage with young people in really proactive and uh, authentic ways. So I think we build on those. And that happen, it happens within schools, but it also happens in sporting clubs and in churches and in um, places of worship and in surf clubs and in all sorts of environments. And I think with mutual two-way respect and, you know, coming from a place of understanding where young people are at, there's a real opportunity for us to work together to end violence against women and children. Dr Jane Lloyd, Acting CEO of ANROSE, which is Australia's National Organisation for Women's Safety, speaking there with Samyutka Thakur. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the Community Radio Network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal Country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Music.